Hi, and welcome to my first interview on Living Artist Podcast. My guest today is San Francisco Bay Area poet, Susan Brown. She's won prizes from Four Way Books and the Los Angeles Poetry Festival, and also won the Fisher Poetry Prize. Her work has been nominated for three Pushcart Awards, and she's published three books of poetry, including her most recent book titled Just Living, which was published in the fall of 2019. So welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. So happy you're here. Wonderful to be here, Shannon. And I just want to give some background on how I met Susan, which was on the tennis courts. Um, We both are passionate about tennis, and uh, she has a weekly game, which uh, they needed a substitute for. So I was asked to come in and met her there and uh, immediately knew I wanted to get to know her better. So um, we've now been friends for several years and done a lot of fun stuff together, meditation hikes and gone to poetry readings. So. I miss those meditation hikes. I know, me too. Yeah. We'll find more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I thought we'd start with a quote from Kim Adonizio's book, The Poet's Companion, which is a guide to writing poetry. And Susan, you, you and Kim are friends. Yeah, yeah. Kimmy and I are been friends and tennis buddies a long time, 20, 20 years. I was going to ask you how you met her. Yeah, it was, well, it was through Dorian Locks, um, who also was the co-writer of the Poet's Companion. And Dorian uh, had a workshop in Petaluma that I used to attend. And through that workshop, I met Kim. Um, and then <clears throat> because they were they were holding some workshops, poetry workshops together. And then they put their book, uh, Poet's Companion, uh, together and asked me if I would uh, submit one of my poems that they had seen in the workshop called "My Mother When My Mother Meets God," and that's in my book uh, Buddha's Dogs. So then Kim uh, Dorian moved away, and then Kim and I started to uh, work together on getting that poem in the book. And then we met on we met one day and found out we both played tennis, and that was the beginning of our friendship. Great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the quote I was going to read is just talking about poets needing to write poetry. Um, So she said, poets are often people who must write in order to process their experiences and feelings. Writing is, in a very real sense, a mode of perceiving the world, of taking it into ourselves as well as trying to externalize what's inside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trying to externalize what's inside. Yeah, the inner and the outer. Mm -hmm. And I have another quote from Zach Rogow, who was one of the judges for the 2019 Catamaran Poetry Prize for West Coast Poets, which Susan won for her book, Just Living. And he's describing her, her poems and says, these amazing poems fuse outrageous humor with a stiletto-sharp pathos. Yeah, that was, you know, I, you could just read that over and over about how, <laughs> how wonderful my poems are. <laughs> no, that was his, it was great. Zach was... He wrote a great um, blurb for my book. It's wonderful. So I was thinking we could start with you reading a poem uh, from Just Living. Okay. Get things going. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll start with, uh, um, I'll pick this poem, uh, Looking for Soho in Soho. And um, this has a little story. You know, most poems have a little story, but uh, of course, behind them. But uh, I don't want to go too long into that story because then you don't then you don't need to hear the poem but this was in New York uh, in the Soho district with my two sisters and uh, uh, I don't write all of my poems from some kind of uh, personal experience like that but many of them can be from from that and this this was one of them looking for Soho in Soho many streets but not the streets we wanted and many shops but not the shops we wanted. We wanted a different place, not where we were, although we swore we'd been there before and thought it was near, so we kept on. And finally we asked someone where it was, and she said, where you are. But we didn't believe it. Where the cobblestones? Where the leafy trees with branches like filigree? Where are the little shops crammed with curios? We were thirsty, exhausted, asking each other, where? Where did it go? If we found it, we could rest. It would be the destination, the answer to our question, a question of meaning, of rescue from other places, streets, shops, meanings that hadn't done their job to soothe our seeking. 
Now it was evening, but we continued, turning corners and decades, growing old, dying, dead, yet persevering, reincarnating, searching through centuries for that one small street, cool, quiet, except for the tap-tap of our shoes entering where we'd find what had been hidden from us all of our lives, our many, many lives. Thank you. That was wonderful. Looking for Soho in Soho. <laughs> we just kept going to different uh, shops and saying, where's Soho? Well, it's right where you are. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, no. We kept arguing. No, I can't be here. <laughs> we, I love that. we never know where we are. We always want somewhere where we're not. That's very yeah. true. <laughs> Um, I thought maybe we could go a little bit just into how you fell into poetry and found this to be your your means of expressing yourself. Where it all began? Well, it began with this wonderful woman named uh, Virginia Lewis. And uh, Virginia uh, was my next-door neighbor, my parents' next-door neighbor and mine, in uh, Long Beach, California, where I was where I was born and grew up for a time. And um, she was an artist, a fine artist, and um, painter, and, and did drawings and um, lithographs, all kinds of art. And uh, my mother was her best friend, and so we used to always go to the beach together, her, uh, Virginia and her daughter, and then my mom and, and Cheryl and I. My younger sister, Carrie, wasn't born yet. And, um, you know, Virginia must have seen some thing in me that really was would be interested and uh, so she brought over a couple of and this was and this was later on actually about when I was 10 years old because um, then we had moved up to the Bay Area and <clears throat> she came for a visit <clears throat> I mean she was a kind of lady that uh, she used to swim a mile besides being an artist she would swim a mile in the ocean every day and then she meditated and she did yoga, and she drank her whiskey neat, and she smoked camel cigarettes. I don't know. She was just this, and she was a vegetarian. So she just was this wonderful. Ahead of her time. Yeah, she's a wonderful lady of many diverse attributes, and I and I think she was such a good influence on my mother. Um, you know, she Virginia was not uh, suburban, so suburban, and I think. My mother was very attracted uh, to that. Anyway, so she brought these two books to me, and uh, one was a very uh, beautiful uh, book of uh, poetry by this uh, one one poet who's I forgot to bring the book whose name I don't remember right now. But and then there was lithographs with it, and it was just a gorgeous book. I think believed published by Poetry Northwest, and it was over my head, but I really responded to the. To the language and the, the music um, in the book, the cadence of the lines, and then also the lithographs. So I just was fascinated. I'd never seen a book like that. And um, and then then this other book I did understand. It was called Archie and Mahitable, and this was uh, by a journalist named Don Marquis, who was also a poet, free verse poet. And uh, the Archie is a cockroach. And Archie is also a philosopher and a free verse poet. And so when Don, the, the uh, journalist, leaves his room for the day uh, apartment, Archie hops up onto the typewriter and writes his poetry. And um, how, he, he's a cockroach, so he can't, he doesn't have enough weight to do the shift key. So there, there's no capitalization, there's no punctuation in, in his poetry. And then um, to write, he has to throw himself head first onto each key. So if you, so if, you know, talk about a challenge for a poet. And that's pretty, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for if you want to be a poet. <laughs> Just bang your head against something. Yeah, yeah, bang your head against the wall. You know, bang your head against the keys. But you really have to have a, a calling, I think, to be a poet. And uh, Archie did. And I. And then Mahitable was the cat in his in the room. And she had had nine lives. She was on her ninth life. 
And she just was such a character and had many, many adventures and many lovers. And she had a great positive energy. I mean, she was always saying, toujours gay. <laughs> you, know, I'm, you know, she just was always happy about everything, although, although brutal, you know, very difficult things had happened to her. You know, it's dangerous being so many people. I think she had even been Cleopatra, as I recall. And so... Um, he just had lot, Archie had lots of material with Mahitable around, uh, but then he was a cockroach, so he also co could go all over the neighborhood quite, you know, cland clandestine. <laughs> yeah, he could go to poetry readings and learn. He could conduct his own. Yeah, yeah he could conduct his own. Yeah, oh so, they, these, so this was just a marvelous universe to enter. And so it was not only the style that intrigued me when I was 10, you know, the lack of punctuation, the lack of capitalization, because, you know, when you're in grammar school, I mean, when you're in, in school, you're not supposed, you're supposed to use your capitalization and your punctuation. And, um, so I was just fascinated. That's, that's the story. And then I started writing. And so school, real, I think I was writing before that, but, but you know, I, I got more of a sense of what, could, what is possible in poetry. And it was like everything is possible from, you know, the most sublime and elegant language to what we call kitchen language or, you know, just ordinary discourse and um, conversation. And of course, I did not know all these things when I was 10, and I'm looking at this. I just was intrigued, yeah. And so. then how did you, did you keep a journal, or what was your sort of method back when you were 10? Did you... Oh. Many, 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 many journals, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I, I know my mother gave me diaries so I could lock them, right? And, you know, but I just had d journals after journals after journals, and yeah, all my whole life. And then I don't know where the old ones are, but I, in my basement in my house right now, I have just tons of them. And, and I don't have as many, you know, it started to, to lessen as computers came in. And so I still write in a journal to get ideas and, and, and thoughts going and, and to surprise myself. I don't know, using the journal and writing by hand just has a good connection for me, probably because I did it since I was small. And, you know, I think Picasso said something like, you know, it takes forever to become a child. You know, it's hard to go, oh, I can't remember the quote, so it doesn't matter, but just that, you really, poetry is linked, I think, to the youngest part of you and the most vulnerable. And, the, you know, so I think that connection with writing in a journal since I was young is good for me to continue. But then I get, I put the poem, I, if I start putting the poem on the computer, that's it. Then I want to be, then I want to be working with it on the computer. And when you write in your journal, do you start sort of in the poetry style or it's more just free, free writing and then you go back and create a poem by pulling out of your free writing? I mostly do free writing. Okay. Yeah, I'm really a big advocate in my teaching. I'm a big advocate of free writing and absolutely letting yourself go and, and writing more. Like if, if you wrote three, one page, you know, make your, I never write less than one, three pages. I always do at least three pages and then... If I'm really trying to generate something, I'll do 10. And just, you know, just, and, I, and, and there's a lot of junk in there. Of course, there's just nothing, you know, there's blah, 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 there's just nothing. But then all of a sudden, you know, there can be this line or this surprising image. And a lot of times, um, you know, from writing so much, I know that one of the best things, of course, is to be specific. So if I'm just writing in this cerebral manner of the abstract uh, or complaining or whining or you know whatever I'm doing over and over again then I just start to really look around myself and look at objects and look at the landscape and and try again inner and outer like we were talking about earlier um, what's going on in the inside and how is the outside like that or what's going on on the outside and how is the inside like that you know that that I, yeah but for most of the part I'm just writing yeah and I think we were talking the other day just to sometimes you get inspiration just by being out in nature on a walk or just you, it gives you time just to go over ideas or come up with new ideas absolutely I love walking I, I started running when I was 25 uh, from my health a doctor said you know you got to do three things you, you you're in very bad shape and and that was for various reasons and so he said I want you to um, go running every day 
I want you to at least a mile. You know, I hadn't done anything. I used to play, I played tennis. I still play tennis, but I had stopped playing tennis then. And I, you know, he says, you need to exercise. You need to eat better. You need to meditate and you need to find an art. And he goes, then you are going to get well. And because I was, you know, I was just not well at all and really going downhill. And he said, you do those things and you're not going to need any pills. And you're not going to, he actually was, he was a doctor, but he was a seventh day Adventist doctor. And he really didn't, I don't know how I ended up with him, but um, <clears throat> I think he just told me that, that he practiced. He really didn't believe that much in, in drugs and pills and so yeah, and he healed me. It really healed me. And it, but I already had been writing, of course, for a long time. So I had that. But then I started uh, running. And then, of course, as I got older, I started walking m- more than running, but walking longer. And I found that when I would do that, I would just start working on my poem. Mm-hmm. And or if I swim, now I like to swim too. And so I'll swim laps. And after about I don't know, 10 laps or so, because I do a half a mile, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the poem that's in my head. Mm -hmm. And that's, I really recommend, yeah, people walking or swimming or something to work on their poem. I I walked with Susan the other day on her favorite path in her neighborhood, which was a a lovely walk. Yeah. It's nice to see that. It's nice to be out there. Yeah. Um, How about your earliest... um, well, I was going to say your earliest memory of writing poetry, but we went over that. So, uh, sorry, what was your poetry training? Um, you went to graduate school in creative writing, right? And yeah, really, school didn't um, add much to my poetry training until I was in college. And then in college, I majored in philosophy, probably because of Archie. <laughs> no, not his fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I really want to understand the world and how to live, you know, come on, philosophy. And then I found out, then I took a lot of philosophy and I went, well, they don't know either. <laughs> um, they don't know either how to live. But um, but I got a lot of good information about, about living anyway. And uh, then I switched to majoring in um, literature and, and writing. And um, yeah, so in graduate school, definitely, I was, I was majoring in, of course, creative writing and did a master's thesis in poetry called The Novitiate. And so that was, actually, that was really my first book. Oh. And I was so, um, I was just so proud to, to write a book like that when I was, I think I, you know, I was 25 and, and um just so happy about it and that was the beginning of my uh, education in poetry was really I would just really say graduate school because undergraduate school I was too much involved in reading uh, all kinds of literature novels fiction plays Uh, but then I really focused in on um, on poetry but the real the real deep poetry education came when I started working with uh, Dorian and uh, Kim. And then, I, and then I started working with all kinds of going to, to workshops with Sharon Olds, uh, Robert Haas, uh, Brenda Hillman, Lucille Clifton, um, Jack Galway. I, yeah, Galway Canal. I mean, mm-hmm. I have been so fortunate to have uh, just some fantastic mentors. And, uh, but I found my way there. I mean, people say, oh, how did you... How'd you get involved with all those people? And I said, well, you know, I, I sought them out and I went to where they were and I paid for their workshops because I, they were the great, they were the great teachers and I wanted to, I wanted to be a better poet. And I didn't do that till later on. I was too busy with my career as a, as a English professor and teaching. So I didn't start to really uh, hone my craft more seriously and do a lot of revision until I met Dorian, and I think I was 38. Mm-hmm. I think I was 38 when I met her at 39. Yeah. And when you look back to those poems that you wrote in graduate school, are they very different style than your poetry now? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no poems from graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> From my novitiate. <laughs> wait, let me wait. Let me let me think. Let me, that's a really good question. Is there any that survived into a into my first book? No, no, no. The the first one was with in the Squaw Valley Writers Community um, that I went to. That, there's a couple 
from there that are in the first book. Yeah. And how about who are some of your favorite poets or poets who had the biggest influence on you? Um, you know, it just changes all the time. Mm -hmm. And all those people I just mentioned um, were huge influences on me. Um, and I would say that really, you know, Dorian and uh, Dorian Locks and Kim Adonizia are still uh, writing fantastic poetry today. And they and Sharon Olds, um, they they still influence me. Those those three women um, have will never they will never not stop influencing me. They're terrific. And um, but now you know Mary Mary Ruflay, She's a a poet that comes to mind. Her style is so different from mine, but uh, very very much more. Um, uh, surreal, I would say, and much less uh, um, narrative, but I just really enjoy her approach. And then, um, uh, oh, there's, you know what, there's just so many. Um, who am I reading? Uh, I love Bob Hickok. Um, he's, he's somebody I'm, every time I read him, his poetry, I have to start writing. I just have to put a pen down and start writing. You know, so I, I read, I could go on and on with different people, but I mean, I have stacks yeah. of poetry books on, on, my, on my desk in my writing room. And uh, Matthew Lipman, I really enjoy uh, his poetry uh, right now. Um, and what, what do you think about yeah. the Bay Area poetry community? Is it pretty strong? And oh, I think, yeah, I can mention another couple of people in the Bay Area community like Ellen Bass and Danusha uh, Lamaris. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, Danusha just came out with a new book, and so did Ellen. Um, and I, I love their poetry. Um, Brittany Perham, I think she's a wonderful writer. She lives in San Francisco. Uh, there, there's many here in the the this the Bay Area community is just dense with you know what is Tony Hoagland who's one of my influences he he said he he said yeah you can't walk down the street in Berkeley without hitting a poet with your baguette. <laughs> There's so many poets here, which is you know which is good, yeah. and and I think that poetry is is booming. Yeah, there yeah. seem to be a lot of readings. I mean, I've gone to several with you, and you have a lot in the Bay Area, so it, there does seem to be, for my amateur eyes, a, a fairly strong community. Yeah, I think that people are that poetry is speaking to more more people now than ever because of the times we live in, for and sure. we need we need poetry as something to guide us in or or relieve us uh of the of the pain <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of, sure. of, of of what's going on because the poets will of course talk about everything yeah and um and how about a favorite poem you wrote do you have a favorite poem that you've written um, my favorite poem is, honestly, it's, uh, I, yeah, I do. I really do have favorite poems of mine, um, but my favorite poem is my next poem. <laughs> my favorite poem is the one that I am thinking about as we sit here that has not come into existence yet, and it better arrive tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow is Friday, and... Um, I often work, Mondays have been seeming like my, my real day to sit down and write all day, but I'm, I'm doing that tomorrow because the world's been so crazy yeah. right now, and I didn't get my Monday in, so Friday is happening. And I don't know, the poem, I hope it's coming to me right now. I actually have the first line. You have to grab it out of the air. I have the first line. Okay. Yeah, I have the first line. And if I have that, maybe I can get another line. And yeah, I think Ernest Hemingway said something like, or Raymond Carver. I get them all mixed up, but my, all my loves, all my favorite writers. I think it's, you know, you just, you build a piece of writing, you know, word by word. Oh, Anne Lamott, Anne Lamott said that word word by word, but I think many writers said that in different ways. You, um, it's like you just can see a little a bit of together. Yeah, I mean, you just start with the words, mm -hmm. and it, you start with sometimes you start with the feeling, of course, or the emotion, or the experience, um, or an image. I mean, but it's language, you know. It's really words that lead you to this next line and that's what I find so appealing about the 
art of writing and is you don't it's the surprise and if you're not surprising yourself I mean if I'm not surprising myself in my own poem obviously I am not going to be surprising the reader and I do know Robert of course everyone knows not everyone but Robert Frost said no tears in the writer no tears in the reader no laughter in the writer no laughter in the reader and you know no surprise in the writer no surprise in the reader so if if your poem or a piece of writing isn't doing that to you yeah believe me it's definitely (laughs) boring the reader (laughs) so yeah i mean i've learned these tricks uh not tricks but i've learned all this little by little yeah word by word and how do you, where do you see your poetry going, or where where do you what direction do you want to move towards, or in terms of how your poetry might evolve? You know, I'm always hoping for it to be fantastic. <laughs> you know, I'm always I want my poetry to evolve to you know the greatest thing anybody has ever read in their entire existence. Uh, I mean, I, I'm hoping for something you know wonderful each time I write. Uh, unfortunately, that does not happen. And um, but but what I'm hoping, and you know, you have to just go through a lot of of writing in order to get something where you finally go, okay, you know, that's it. That that's. And when you get into that territory, you know it. Mm-hmm. And like you know, the hairs on your arms can raise, and and you just you're just captivated and and you might not be able to finish the poem for a while but you know that you have come upon something that's so true mm-hmm. and i think truth well truth and beauty as keats said but truth is really what poets are after they're you know they're after the emotional truth and they're after the you know and the factual truth but really the psychological and emotional and spiritual truth is what we're 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 doing, trying to get that, and and to capture even a moment of reality is you know well is is so much harder than 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 I used to think you know than I than I thought, and so I'm hoping for my poetry to go into doing all those things, but also a little wilder, uh, and I think that's why I'm reading Mary Rufley a lot. I'm reading uh, uh, Dean Young was some is someone and definitely was very influencing on me, influenced me in my second book. Um, and I can't, of course, I can't do what Dean does, and I can't do what Mary does. I can't do what Bob Hickok does. I, I can't do what Dorian does. I can't do what any of those poets do. I have to do what I do, but I'm hoping for a little bit more wilderness or wildness, uh, bewilderment. Um, yeah, I like the word bewilder. Uh, and and um, I seem to be moving toward, and I don't even know what that looks like, but I seem to be really moving toward um, a deeper, more spiritual uh, quality. I think I think because of the times, um, yeah, and I don't want to be so ironic. I mean, irony irony has been something that. I'm pretty good at, and uh, I I feel like it's it's okay, it's it's a good thing to know how to do, but then you can do it too much, and your poetry negative. Yeah, yeah, it dips into sarcasm. It dips into a realm that's too surface, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be there anymore. I I don't I don't want to even mess around with that. And I and I notice that I you know it's a little habitual for me, you know, to be this. I came from a family of people who really love to tease each other. And um, and black and dark humor and and that's all been great, but um, I'm I'm seeking a little hmm, deeper deep deepness deep wildness. Sounds good. <laughs> I, I don't like know. it. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, related to the part about just poetry being truth, I was thinking maybe you could read the poem you were thinking about, the one with Kenneth. That, that's a pretty. Is that was that a good time for that, or or we can read it another time. Um, the one that you said you recently wrote, I think. Well, no, that... Is that too provocative? I think that's not... Yeah, that... Well, I don't think... Yeah, I like that poem, but... Or just read... Would you like to read another poem right now? Um, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I definitely would, but it, it, to segue from... Yeah, now I'm kind of looking at my or poems like... From... 
Yeah, which one? Yeah, but which one uh, would maybe? Well, I think that's a great question that you asked. I mean, a great idea for me to try to find one, a newer one that's doing that. But I see. I don't really think I've really quite accomplished it yet. But um, I think I'll read this one though. This is a brand new poem. Okay. And it's not in my uh, any book yet. Um, it's called Donovan. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I think it's all there in the poem. Donovan. I walk down my neighborhood street called Mountain, although there is no mountain, only rolling hills although hills don't really roll. And as I look at a window display of shoes and pass by the candy store, a gasp happens in my head, a quake in my heart. They aren't here, my father who loved sweets, my mother who loved shoes, and the sun shines on a world of orphans. I quake along Mountain Street like a rolling gasp, although if someone asked, how are you, I'd say fine like most of us are and aren't. I thought sadness was a prison, but it connects us, and if a chain, it should be one of tenderness. My father died two years ago, although sometimes I say a year, a way of keeping him closer, can't do that anymore with my mother, need math on paper, the ache woven into each leaf, although there are birds and nests. We live in a tsunami waves of being and non-being. But I'm no philosopher, standing at the counter buying bunion pads, feeling drowned and drying under fluorescent lights and warmed by the smile of the clerk who blesses me with, have a great day as I go out to mountainless mountain and remember Donovan's song playing in my parents' house in the 60s. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. Yeah, I think I'm trying to, I think, yeah, I think that poem is trying to get there, what, what I'm talking about, yeah. I think that's one of the things I love about your poems, just we were talking about truth, but just they're so frank and, you know, you find the humor and just... Yeah, I had to get those bunion pads in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kept looking at those bunion pads because you know I wasn't I wasn't really yeah I was buying bunion pads that that day and I thought but you don't have to put those bunion pads in there and then I went and so I put them in and then I this is what poets do that's why we know people don't pay us enough for that though right I mean I can spend all day should I keep the bunion pads in or should I take them out you know the well, story that, that relates to my next question which is how do you know when a poem is finished <laughs> Um, oh my, let's see, how do I know when a poem is finished? Um, but I have to say one thing that just came to mind of uh, Flaubert who wrote uh, Madame Bovary. I'll never forget reading, uh, reading about him. You know, he, he was in Italy and uh, he, he was supposed to be having this great time and he was writing and his friend said, hey, we're all going out, we're going to go drinking, we're going to go you know, eating and drinking, having a great time all night and day, whatever. And he said, oh, no, 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 I, I can't go. I'm, 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 I'm working. And they said, no, yeah, come on. And they said, no, 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 I, I just have to stay home today. So they left. And then the next day they said, well, how did it go yesterday? And he said, it was a fabulous day. He said, I, fantastic time. I, um, I put in a period and I took it out. <laughs> And then I put in the period, and I took it out, and then I decided on a comma, <laughs> because it was an incredible day. So, you know, but anyway, I had to, so, oh no, now I lost your question. Oh, how do you know when a poem is finished? Um, a poem is finished, well, I, I love, you know, I've often wondered when my poems are finished, and I have found out... Uh, from people who have helped me edit them, that oftentimes my poems are finished about three lines above, and uh, because I tend to go on and on, <laughs> as you can tell from our interview, I can I can go on too much. So I've pretty much landed the poem three or four lines above. So I've started to I, now that I know that. So I don't censor myself. 
but um, yeah, I, I realized that I, I have a tendency to go on too long. It's already there. The other thing is that I heard this wonderful quote, I don't know who it's from, but that a, po- a good ending uh, to a poem or a story or a novel or, you know, whatever, is that it's, it's surprising yet inevitable. It's surprising yet inevitable, which that's really hard to accomplish. That's such an intellectual idea that, of course, when you're writing, I mean, and you're the, when you're in the trance of composing, I mean, you're not thinking that. But in revision, yeah, I do look at the ending hard. I look at it really hard because the, the oh, and another, th- uh, but this makes me think, of, and then the other times you just have to let it go, really, honestly, you just, like John Updike said, yeah, I, I put it in the mailbox at a weak moment, you know, to the publisher, in other words, you just have to abandon it and say, that that is really the best I can do, but, um, you know, one of, one of the great things to do with revision that it took me a long time to learn is to wait, in other words, when I write a poem, I now wait, like I can go, oh, it's done. And then I wait a week or two weeks or even three weeks and I'm working on something else. And then I can look at it very objectively and I, and I go, you know what, that is not done. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a lot of problems with that. So I, um, and then I have a, uh, like you said, a writing community. I, I think writers need each other and well, we all need, now I'm going to launch into Barbara Streisand, <laughs> people who need people. But um, yeah, we, we need each other to say, that's really working and this is not, this is not working. And so I have four wonderful, uh, three wonderful people in my writing group, all who have written wonderful books, uh, Julia B. Levine, uh, Susan Cohen, and uh, Rebecca Faust. They are in my writing group, and they say, you know, look at this opening, look at this closing. Oh, and one thing I was taught by Marie Howe, who was another wonderful teacher I had, um, she said, look at the on-ramp of your poem. And I thought that was such an interesting idea of the poem's first line as the on-ramp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how far, how far have you traveled from that on-ramp? And, you know, because poetry is, I think, at its best, it's an adventure. It's, a poem is an adventure, it's an experience, yeah, on the page. And if, and if, you're, if you're not taking your reader anywhere new, in some small way, then, you know, you got to look at that on-ramp and that off-ramp and, and uh, yeah, where have, we, where have we really gone here? So, but all of that is in revision. And one of the things that you have to fall in love with after a while when you're a young poet, maybe not at first, because, you know, revision can be tough and you want to write a lot when you're young and, and uh, not have too many holds on you and, and worries uh, you are going to get published if you are called to it and if you are working at it, um, you know, not that you have to work at it every single day, but that you're sitting down in the chair. Practice. Yeah, yeah, just like if you play an instrument, right. you have got to practice. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, related to that, that's a good time. I was going to read a quote from another quote from Kim Adonizio's book, The Poet's Companion, just about the fact that we need more poets. So she said, we need more poets, not fewer. We invite you to do what Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy asked, to add your light to the sum of light. Do it with patience and love and respect for the depth and difficulty of the task. Oh, yeah, I I love those words, add your light to the sum of light. Oh, of course, you know, writers are in the business of of, uh, compassion and light. I mean, I I think, you know, writing, for me, reading, what reading has done for me in my life, of course, is make me feel less alone, but also um, it's expanded my heart Mm -hmm. because I've, uh, my my grandfather, Percy Franklin Brown, gave me these little moccasins. Uh, He loved to buy things from from mail order. Oh my God, he would have loved Amazon, you know, or loved (laughs) loved the internet, but he would buy, he bought me these little moccasins and on the, there was a little plaque on them that said, um, you know, in order to know another person, you have to walk a mile in their moccasins. And I kept that on my desk for years. And 
I really feel that what writing does is that we walk in other people's shoes and we walk in their, well, poetry helps us to actually really live inside other people's souls. I mean, inside their, literally inside their, not just their shoes, but shoe souls, but their, you know, heart and soul. And uh, you're really just sharing the breath mm -hmm. of the other person's uh, lines and, 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 and uh, deep psychology, really. And so it's, I think poetry is the most intimate of the arts. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then do you have any advice for young or poets who wants to get their work published? Young or old? <laughs> yeah, because some of us start older. Um, Since you've had success with having three books published, so yeah, somewhat just, of an expert. Just keep writing. Yeah, and getting keep, into journals. Is there keep writing? Yeah, first keep writing. You know, really write and have a writer's community. Have somebody who's you know have a mentor. You know, find some teachers that you know whether you go to graduate school or go to college or not. But I, I really recommend it that. Um, because you meet, it's a, it's a way of really finding a community um, in, in the academy, but also it's nice to have that outside, you know, college where you're working with other writers who are, who are doing what you're doing and uh, supporting each other. You got to have that. And then there's so many journals and online has absolutely opened up an incredible world of, of publishing. So if, if you are a young writer and you're working at your craft and, and you're taking it seriously and doing a lot of reading, um, you're gonna, you'll get published. Yeah, absolutely. And not to plug you, but to give you a plug, Susan does offer one-on-one -on -one, um, workshops, online workshops. Um, yeah. So you can learn more on her website, which is susanbrownpoems.com. And you can also go there to find out about her upcoming readings. So lots of good information on there. It's a beautiful website. Glad, glad you like it. <laughs> and that's because Shannon built it. Yes, indeed. So, um, it was a fun yes. project. Very, she's very talented, and I, I just love that website. I, it, was a, it was a sham. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the first one was, was pretty bad. So we'll, why don't we just close with a couple, well, a couple of fun, more fun questions or life questions and then maybe one more poem. Yeah. Um, so what can't you live without? Oh, I can't, well, I can't live without writing. Honestly, I, I just can't live without <clears throat> having that beautiful practice and art. And then I can't live without exercise and, and nature and... Tennis. And you tennis, and my perhaps? and my friends. Oh yeah, Kenneth is kind of down the line there. No, no, that Kenneth. You know that that man came into my life, and and uh, I was just so happy because it had been a long it had been a long this search. Husband, this is my husband yeah. from Denmark. And we've been yeah. married for twenty seven years. Twenty. Yeah, we've been married. Well, we've been together for twenty seven years, and we've been married for 17 years. Yeah, we lived together in sin. For Actually, we lived together in sin for nine years. And uh, But we bought a house together, and I figured, oh my God, uh, I'm in this house with him. That's, that's, more, that's more serious than marriage. <laughs> Do you have a secret for what makes your long-term relationship work since you have been together? Oh, Is there a, a little nugget you have? A little nugget of what... Piece of, of advice? Of what makes it work? Oh my goodness, um, you know, I, 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 well, you know, we, we waited. We didn't wait on purpose, but we, we met each other when we were older. And uh, 30, I was 39, but I had to meet him again. And I'm not, we don't need to tell that story, but I had to, marry, I had to meet my husband twice. The first time it didn't work because of, of our different difficulties. But um, then surprisingly, we met, we met each other again, so amazingly. So, you know, I was 30, I was 40. Yeah, by the time I met him again, I was 40. And he's younger, so he was, he was 30, 33. And um, no, no, he was 36. And, you know, during those years, those couple years where we had to meet each other again, 
I think we grew in a in a fab in a really amazing way, and we were really ready. So I, 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 I believe in readiness. I believe in timing. How about uh, destiny? Do you think there that is all of a factor? Well, because of my story yeah. with him, where I had to meet him twice, and I and I uh, I never thought I'd see him again. Yeah. You know, of course, I think that that there is. I think it, somehow it was you know, quote, destined. I mean, you know, those kind of words are kind of hard for me, but I, I think that, um, I think that readiness is all, Mm -hmm. um, and you can battle it out with each other. I mean, people do, but I really think waiting and, and, oh, you know, Wil- Rilke, am I pronouncing, no, don't, Wilka. I'm always always mispronouncing his name, Rilke. Everyone knows who I mean. Um, he he said of he said that in in his letters to a young poet. You know that 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 readiness is is you, you want to become. What did he say? He says you you want to become world in yourself, a world in yourself, mm-hmm. and um, being complete. Yeah, um, I mean, somewhat. We're we're. Not, I don't think we're ever complete, but I think we. We are, but we are whole. I think, but we're still we're still on the quest. But I think that that truly, Kenneth and I um, had luck, not luck. Yeah, luck and destiny and being ready. But just day to day, um, you know, you have to you have to build it. You have to you have to you can let it just slide and you know like I say am I a piece of furniture I mean am I a piece of furniture (laughs) yeah (laughs) he goes no Susan you are not a piece of furniture I mean in other words you have to invigorate your you have to water your you have to water your flower (laughs) tend to your garden you have to tend your garden yeah Um, okay two more questions and then we'll read one more poem so what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given Oh, um, my dad told me, World War II veteran, he told me, don't give up, never give up. And, uh, and uh, he battled alcoholism his entire life, really. The World War II def- definitely didn't help uh, in that regard. And, and he, um, he never gave up. He, he did beat alcoholism at one point where he, you know, did not drink anymore. And now that I've gotten older, um, I can really see just how, how difficult that was for him. And, and, uh, and then he was, he played tennis until he was 88 years old. So he never gave up. And he taught me that on the tennis court too. And he said, um, you're always playing against yourself. And I thought that was so interesting, like, um, you know, in life, as well as on the tennis court, you're playing against yourself, Mm -hmm. and who you are on the tennis court has a lot to say about, um, you know, about what you're doing in life in in general. And so, you know, that's, and to to be happy. I mean, my father, he battled so hard uh, to find his uh, joy and his happiness, and I did a lot of therapy in my life, and you know, my one of my other favorite pieces of advice is, you know, to you know, it's, it's just a cliche, but uh, my therapist said uh, to be happy is one of the most revolutionary acts a human being can commit in a lifetime, and I was just, you know, it just bowled me over. It's like, wow, you know, happiness is a revolutionary act, but I think it is because. Um, it's hard work, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that's just one of the, one of the things I love about you is just your your optimistic spirit. In light of just life, life is challenging for all of us, and I feel like you always have humor and uh, you have, seem to view things very optimistically from my point of view. So I love that about you. Um, okay, last question: most inspirational place? Oh, my most inspirational place is always the ocean. Always, yeah. It's well, having grown up right next to the beach, were you right next to the beach in Long Beach? Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we were three blocks from the beach. Yeah. And I just, you know, but many people who don't grow up in the ocean, they love the ocean too. And that's why just living, I loved uh, this, you know, Catherine Sergison, who was the pub, who is the publisher of Catamaran um, Books. And, and um, she had these <clears throat> wonderful arts, pieces of artwork that I could choose for my cover. And when I saw the, this painting, um, I think it's this one on the front is called Passages. Yeah, 
um, I just had to have this mm -hmm. for the cover of my book. And uh, actually, it's it's not the ocean. I found out the artist. Um, it's it's Lake Michigan, oh. but it looks like the ocean. I spent lots of time on Lake Michigan. Yeah, really. Up, yeah. yeah. Okay. Used to go there in summer. Yeah, she swims in Lake Michigan, and <coughs> and she says she does her best thinking about her paintings in while she's swimming and. Anyway, so the ocean. All right. Yeah. So why don't we close with uh, one more poem? Okay. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll read one from uh, Just Living. And um, I'm just w wondering if I want to read the one I thought of <coughs> or some other one, I think. Um, but I don't want to spend... Oh, you know, like I said, there's nothing worse than the, than the poet. Okay. Um, I'm going to read that one. I'm going to read the one we thought of. Okay. Uh, Variation on Texts by Vallejo, Donald Justice, and Patrick Phillips. I'm going to take a little drink of water. And this does have a, a little in, intro. Um, Cesar Vallejo, of course, uh, was, is the first one. I'm, I'm, it's called Variation on Texts, and there's three poets here. And Vallejo wrote a poem that was very famous where it started, um, I will die on a Tuesday, I will die in Paris um, in the rain. And I might have said, I will die in Paris on Tuesday in the rain. And then Donald Justice wrote a poem that started, I will die in Miami in the sun. And Patrick Phillips later on wrote a poem called, I, that, not called, but the first line was, I will write, I will die in Brooklyn in January. And I loved all three of those poems. All three of those poems just influenced me and over the years, and I just thought they were just such gorgeous poems. So I decided I would write my variation on, on that line. But then I started to write the poem you know, that was my idea. I don't usually start poems from ideas, not usually, but um, this really was started by an idea of doing that. So I started to write, I will die, <laughs> you know, and I went, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. So instead I started it this way. And here's the title again, Variation on Text by Vallejo, Donald Justice, and Patrick Phillips. No one will die in my backyard, in the sun on a day in May, when the wind polishes the roses and the wings of the bees. It will be a Saturday like today, a day without elegy, when my heart is not keening, when my friends join me at the table for wine and laughter. No one is dead in May, in my backyard, on a Saturday, there will be a party, and nothing is wrong in our bodies, and we are not alone. Even when the rain comes, we let the drops dazzle in our hair, and no one drives away along the darkening road. We stay together under the patio umbrella for more stories and song. And never before did life seem so full. And the grave diggers rest their shovels and out of respect, take a swig from their flasks. Thank you so much for reading that. You're welcome, and Shannon. Having been to Susan's house, I can just envision sitting out on her patio and enjoying the evening. Well, I can't wait till we can do that soon. Me too. And be under the patio umbrella in the gorgeous May. Definitely. Well, thank you for being here today. I'm so honored to have you um, as my first in-person guest. And just be sure and check out Susan's website at Susan Brown Poems. That's brown with an E at the end. Um, you can also visit the website livingartistpodcast.com to learn more about her and other artists as well. So well, thanks for tuning in today. Thank you, Shannon. I just loved it. Thank you. Please subscribe to the Living Artist Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to review the podcast and share it so that I can get more listeners and establish a larger Living Artist community.